The late 19th century American hymn writer and composer Philip Bliss, who gave us such hymns as Hallelujah, What a Savior, and Wonderful Words of Life, and who is probably best known for composing the music to Horatio Spafford's famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, also wrote a not-so-famous hymn, uh, which used to be included in Baptist hymnals, but has probably gone the way of so many other hymns uh, that is lost to the annals of history. The hymn is entitled, Free from the Law, O Happy Condition, and it is based upon Paul's words in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, where he says, For sin shall have no dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Meditating upon that text, Philip Bliss wrote these words, Free from the law, O happy condition, Jesus hath bled and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, grace hath redeemed us once and for all. There on the cross, your burden upbearing, thorns on his brow your Savior is wearing. Never again your sin need appall. You have been pardoned once and for all. Now we are free, there is no condemnation. Jesus provides a perfect salvation. Come unto me, O hear his sweet call. Come, for he saves us once and for all. Children of God, O glorious calling, surely His grace will keep us from falling, passing from death to life at His call, blessed salvation once and for all. Once for all, O sinner, receive it. Once for all, O friend, now believe it. Cling to the cross, the burden will fall. Christ hath redeemed us once for all. Now, in addition to Romans 6.14, you probably also heard allusions to Romans 8.1, no condemnation. Romans 8.16, children of God. Not to mention an allusion to Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, right? The burden will fall. In other words, it seems that Philip Bliss was meditating upon these middle chapters of Romans, Romans 6-8. to And this idea introduced in verse 14 of chapter 6 that we are free from the law. But what does that mean? Well, to say that Paul's language regarding the law thus far in Romans has been negative would be something of an understatement. Paul has unequivocally said that the law has no power to save. The law can only reveal sin, 3.20. It can stop the mouth of sinners as they see their accountability to God, 319. The law turns sin into transgression, 415. It even increases the trespass, 520. The law offers no hope for sinners. In fact, it can only bring wrath, 415. Therefore, the gospel, the good news must come to us apart from the law, 321. And sinners must be justified by faith apart from works of the law, 328. Finally, Paul says, we who have been baptized by faith into Christ are not under law, but are under grace, 614. Now, needless to say, such teaching would have been shocking to the Jews, In fact, it was such teaching that got Paul into so much trouble throughout his ministry. 
the most frequent accusation that was brought against Paul was this man, this is a quote from Acts 21, 28, this man teaches everyone everywhere against the people, that is against Israel, against the law, and against this place, that is the temple. The common refrain lodged against Paul was that he was an antinomian, that is, he's anti-law. The law given by God, the law which David claimed was more to be desired than gold and was sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. The law which is perfect, reviving the soul. All of those are from Psalm 19. That law, Paul has the audacity to call the law of sin and death. Romans 8.2 So what does Paul mean when he says that baptized believers are not under law, but are under grace? Well, in Romans 6, 15 to 23, our text for last week, Paul explained what being free from the law does not mean. It does not mean that we are now free to sin. Now, Paul knew that would be the way some would misunderstand or pervert his gospel, turning the grace of God into a license to sin. In other words, there are always going to be some who hear Paul's gospel and they would sing something like this, free from the law, O oh happy condition, I can sin as I please now that I've got remission. Grace has me covered, so let's have a ball for Jesus has saved me once and for all. Now, as we saw last week, Paul responded to that kind of thinking with utter and abject horror. He's horrified at the thought that somebody could hear the gospel of grace and come up with that. And he explains his horror by saying that those who have been freed from the law are not out there floating in some sort of autonomous condition where they can believe and behave however it is they want. Rather, they've become slaves of God and they serve Him with glad obedience from the heart. But Paul, having explained what being free from the law does not mean, has not yet really told us what it does mean. In what way are we free from the law, and how does being free from the law break sin's dominion in our lives? Well, such a stunning statement demands an explanation. In Romans 7, Paul now returns to explain what he meant in Romans 6.14. What is the role of the law now that Christ, the second Adam, has come? That question is going to occupy our attention throughout Romans 7 and into Romans 8. So tracking Paul's thought through Romans 7 is not easy. This is not an easy chapter. But we're going to do our best to unpack it together. Paul seems to be attempting two things in Romans 7. First, he uses the analogy of marriage to argue that one must die to the law in order to be united to Christ. One cannot be wed to both at the same time. You cannot be in covenant to the law and in covenant to Christ at the same time. That's verses 1 to 6. Second, Paul answers questions raised by what he has said about the nature and function of the law, insisting that the problem is not with the law, 
No, the law is holy and righteous and good. Rather, it's our sin that causes the problem and renders the law unable to justify and unable to sanctify those who are unholy and unrighteous and far from good. That's verses 7 to 25. Now, in verses 1 to 6, which is our text for this morning, Paul illustrates the first truth by forming an analogy to what he considers to be universally recognizable marriage law. Now, admittedly, the law to which he refers was far more universal in his day than it is in ours, where divorce severs the marriage covenant just as often as death. But the point he is making is is clear enough, regardless of what kind of marriage situation we live in. Let's look in verses 1 to 3. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, verse 1 establishes the general principle that's recognized by everyone that says that the law has no dominion over the dead. The law cannot command obedience of a dead man, nor condemn him for his disobedience. He's dead. He has nothing more to do with the law. The law can neither expect anything from him nor inflict punishment upon him. Paul then narrows the scope from law in general to marriage law, and he applies the same principle within that context. Death necessarily severs the marriage covenant, unless you're a Mormon. A married woman is bound by law to her husband only so long as he lives. When he dies, she is free from the law of marriage with respect to her husband. If she then goes and unites herself with another man while her husband is still living, that second union is illegitimate and adulterous. But if her husband dies, she is free to form a marital union with another man. Okay, that's verses 1 to 3. It's, it's not difficult to understand. Okay, let, me, let me illustrate if I can. Imagine that a woman is married to an unloving and demanding husband for whom she's never good enough and whom she can never hope to please. Okay, we're going to call this first husband law. All he does is order her around all day long He rewards her the few times she manages to do something good, but he treats her harshly and he curses her when she fails to attain to his impossibly high standard. But he never lifts a finger to help her. There's no affection, there's no love, there's no kindness, there's no grace, there's no mercy. Now imagine that one day in the marketplace, while she's buying ingredients for her husband's dinner, which she's probably going to mess up anyway, She meets another man. Let's call this other man Grace. They strike up a conversation and she's immediately attracted to him. 
He's warm and kind and he laughs easily and he seems so full of joy and so full of life. He even carries her groceries for her. Law never did that. He is in many ways the complete opposite of her husband. But eventually it's time to leave and as she walks home she can't help but think of what life would be like if she were married to grace instead of law. She imagines what happiness, what joy, what peace, what what love would fill their home. So why doesn't she just leave her husband and go to live with this man? Why doesn't she just leave law and go to live with grace? Because she's bound to her husband as long as he lives. If he dies, she is free. Until then, she is bound. The principal point Paul is making in verses 1 to 3 is that death severs the legally binding union. Apart from death, you are bound to that covenant and you are not free. In verse 4 then, Paul takes that analogy and he applies it to the Christian's relationship to the law. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Okay, So taking the general principle set down in verse 1, and illustrated in verses 2 and 3, the principle that death severs the legally binding union, or the legally binding covenant, Paul now applies it to those whom he has described in chapter 6 as baptized believers who are no longer under law, but are under grace. We were placed under the covenant of law. We were married to the law, as it were, in creation, in Adam. When Adam was created, God entered into a covenant with Adam and with all of Adam's descendants, with all of the human race, to bless them with life and with fellowship for the obedience of faith, but to curse them with death and separation for disobedience and unbelief. That initial covenant of creation, some people call it a covenant of law, some people call it a covenant of works, but that initial covenant has never been abrogated. We were born under that covenant. We were born married to the law. However, we are no longer in the state of innocence as Adam was. We have inherited from Adam a a nature that is bent towards sin. And we are born already under the law's curse because of Adam's disobedience. That was Paul's point in the latter half of Romans 5. Therefore, the law can only be to us an angry, demanding, abusive husband, requiring from us a perfection of obedience that we are unable to perform. That's the natural state of every man, and we are bound to that covenant as long as we live. But according to Paul, we have died. We have died to the law through the body of Christ. Let me explain what I think Paul means. 
Jesus was born, remember second half of Romans 5, Jesus was born to be the second Adam. He was born under the law, that is under that covenant of law, Galatians 4.4. He was born bound to the same covenant that binds us, the covenant that says obey in faithfulness and you will be blessed, disobey and be unfaithful and you will be cursed. The difference is, however, that Jesus obeyed and was faithful where the first Adam and all of us in him disobeyed and were unfaithful. Jesus stood under that covenant where the rest of us fell. He thereby merited the blessing of eternal life and fellowship with God through that covenant. But that's not all he did. He also redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, Galatians 3.13, when he died upon the cross. So Jesus not only merited the blessing of obedience under the covenant, he also bore the curse of disobedience through his death on the cross. Therefore, in Christ, that covenant is completely fulfilled for himself, and for all those whom he represents. Well, who's that? Those who have been baptized by faith into Christ. Romans 6, 3 and 4. Those who trust in Christ. Those whose faith is signified and sealed in baptism are united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Romans 6.3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So for the baptized believer in Christ, when Christ obeyed the law, you obeyed the law. When Christ died under the curse of the law, you died under the curse of the law. When Christ was raised from the dead, you were raised from the dead. The important point to remember in all of that is, by virtue of your union with Christ, by faith, you have died and been raised. And what does Paul say happens at death? The covenant of law is severed. And you have been raised in order that you may be united to a new husband in a new covenant, namely to Christ under the covenant of grace. Well, what is the purpose of all this? What is the, the end? In order that we may bear fruit for God, says Paul. Once again, Paul is showing us that our freedom from the law is not a freedom to sin. Rather, the purpose of dying to the covenant of law and being raised in order to be united to Christ in the covenant of grace is in order that we might bear fruit for God. Good fruit, spiritual fruit, the fruit of righteousness. This fruitfulness, this holiness of of life from the inside out is the purpose of our redemption. And that point is so abundantly clear throughout the New Testament, it hardly needs to be proven. But because I kind of like to beat dead horses, I'm going to give you two verses anyway. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. You didn't do this. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared in the gospel, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then note this, here's the, the purpose of Christ's redemption. Who gave himself for us in order to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In other words, Jesus redeemed you in order to make you holy. And that was not going to happen under the covenant of law. But why not? Why cannot you become holy when you're married to the law? Well, again, this is kind of counterintuitive. Why shouldn't the law make us holy? Why shouldn't the law cause us to bear good fruit? Doesn't holiness consist in doing what you're told? And doesn't the law tell us what to do? Well, verses 5 and 6 explain the connection between being free from sin and bearing fruit. Or... The connection between not being under the law and therefore being free from sin's dominion, verse 14. Look at chapter 7 and verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, okay, that's you in Adam married to the law, under the covenant of law. While we were still living in the flesh, our sinful passions, that's your sin nature, catch this, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So why could we not be holy when we were under the law? Why could we not keep the law's commands and live up to its standards? Why could we not bear fruit? Well, Paul's going to go on in Romans 7 and tell us the problem is not with the law. The problem is with us. The law is holy and righteous and good. We are unholy and unrighteous and ungood. Paul's going to explain this at length in the next passage, verses 7 to 12. Though the law is spiritual, verse 14, he says, I am of the flesh sold under sin. So the problem is not the law, the problem is our flesh. And he's not talking about your, your skin and bones, he's talking about your sin nature. Human nature as it is controlled and directed by sin, says John Murray. In other words, you in the flesh is you in Adam, you who once were the slave of sin. In that condition, the law actually had the opposite effect on you, it aroused, it energized sin. 
How so? Well, in our unregenerate, old man, old Adam, fleshly state, the law acts kind of like an earworm. It implants the idea of sin inside our mind, and then we can't get rid of it. We begin to think about it, to dwell upon it, to obsess over it, until we convince ourselves that we must have this thing which is forbidden. That's the power of forbidden fruit. Tell someone they cannot have something, that it's forbidden to them, and their innate depravity, their innate rebelliousness, what Paul calls their sinful passions, will take over and will arouse them or arouse within them desires that they never had before. They never thought to have before until they were told that they couldn't have it. Now, I've seen this happen with my own kids. When I tell them that a particular television show is off limits, it's amazing. Suddenly, they are eaten up with the desire to know what it is that's on that show that's bad that dad won't let us watch. And their desire to watch it actually increases, whereas before, they didn't even know it existed. It didn't hold an allure to them. When the commandment came, the commandment which is holy and righteous and good, It was not met by a desire for holiness and righteousness and goodness. Rather, it was met by a heart ripe for rebellion and autonomy. And so, rather than loving what is good and hating what is evil, obeying what is commanded and rejecting what is forbidden, what we do in our sin natures is to turn the law on its head. We do what is prohibited and we reject what is commanded. The result is that instead of bearing fruit for God, i.e. holiness, we bear fruit for death, i.e. sin. And it happens through the law. That's why Paul calls it the law of sin and death. Holiness was not going to happen through the law. Not for sinners. But now, Paul says, we are released from our bondage to the law. How? We died with Christ, and we were raised again. Now, we're no longer married to the law. We're no longer legally bound to that covenant. Now, we are united to Christ in a new covenant, a covenant of grace. And with that new covenant comes the promised Holy Spirit. It's kind of like a wedding gift, which Jesus gives to all of his bride. Ezekiel foretold this in Ezekiel 36, 26, when he said, in the, in, the, in the context of the new covenant promise, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." So it is the presence and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit who is the wedding gift of Christ to all those who are united in covenant with Him which enables us finally to overcome the sin nature and to bear fruit for God, 7-4, and to serve in the new way of the Spirit that is out of love 
rather than the old way of the written code, that is, out of fear. Again, I want to go back to my illustration. Why does the wife cook and clean and keep house for her harsh and demanding and loveless husband, Law? Well, it's because she's afraid. She's afraid of setting him off. She's afraid of what will happen if she doesn't. She doesn't love him. She fears him. But suppose that first husband died. Or better, suppose that she died and rose again. Now that covenant to law has been severed. Now she's free to run into the arms of grace, and they are united in a new covenant. Question, will she serve grace like she served law? Will she cook and clean and take care of his household like she did law's household? Absolutely. Why? Because she fears him? No. Because she loves him. And furthermore, he helps her in the work. He cleans with her. He cooks with her. He keeps house with her. Law never lifted a finger to help. He just sat back in his recliner and ordered her around. Are you beginning to see now why it is that we must be released from the law if we're to bear fruit that is pleasing to God? The 18th century Scotsman Ralph Erskine put it this way, drawing on Israel's uh, experience in Egypt. He says, a rigid master was the law, demanding bricks, denying straw. Better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly, then gives me wings. I want to close this morning by giving you three implications that I hope will, will drive this text home to our hearts. Implication number one, you must die to the law or you will die under the law. Paul knows of no other way for a sinner to escape the law's condemnation. The law says to every one of us, love and trust and honor and obey and enjoy God as he deserves, and love your neighbor as yourself, and not a one of us has done it. Furthermore, not a one of us has the capacity to do it. We have every one of us exalted ourselves above God as the objects of our own worship. We've either rejected him outright or we've ignored him as if he weren't that important, or we've used him to try to get what we want, or else we've tried to conform him and mold him into our own image. Therefore, every one of us stands guilty underneath God's judgment, condemned underneath God's law. And you need to reckon with this fact if you're going to be saved. The law can only damn you. It cannot save you. It can only condemn you. It cannot justify you. This is why trying to be a better person in order to get God to love you and bless you is an exercise in futility. 
Yet that's how so many people approach God. Under some sort of vague sense of guilt or some sort of vague understanding that I've got to do better, they say, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to start doing good things. I'm going to stop doing bad things. I'm going to start being generally nice. And it's not going to work. Because God knows you don't love Him. He knows That in all of your self-reformation, you're only serving yourself. If you could get what you want, namely forgiveness of sins and everlasting life in heaven without him, you'd cast him away in a moment. That's how wicked we are. You may be able to go to church. You may be able to stop drinking. You may be able to quit watching porn. You may be able to make yourself moral, but you cannot love God as God. And you cannot love others as yourself. You cannot fulfill the law until you die and are raised again. So number one, until you die to the law, You're going to die under the law. Implication number two. If you have died to the law, you are dead to the law. That is, if you are a baptized believer in Christ, you are not under law. To return to the marriage analogy, you died with Christ. Your previous relationship to the law was severed. It was annulled. You are no longer married to the law. You are no longer under law. You were raised with Christ, free from the law, free to be united to Christ in the covenant of grace. Now you belong to Him. You're married to Christ. Do you remember the ceremony? It's when you were buried with Christ by baptism into death and were raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. And now there's no going back. As far as the law is concerned, you're dead. It has no power over you. It has no claim over you. It cannot condemn you. It cannot command your obedience. You do not have to obey its statutes and ordinances. You are now no longer bound to a set of rules written on tablets of stone. You are bound to a person who is Christ, who died and rose again from the dead. And now you are free to love and serve and obey Him in the new way of the Spirit. Love, faith, power. Instead of the old way of the law, fear, self-righteousness, moral resolve. Therefore, if you have died to the law, do not allow yourself to be enslaved to the law again. Don't allow yourself to listen to the law's condemning voice. Don't allow yourself to hear the law say, do this, then God will love you. Then God will accept you. He's not your husband anymore. Now, you are united to Christ in a covenant of grace. God accepts you freely in Christ given you His Spirit, now you want to obey because you love Him. So cling in love and faith to the person of Christ. 
the crucified and risen Jesus. Third, if you are dead to the law, you are under grace. To be under grace is the same thing as being in Christ. So what is, what is the difference on the ground between living under law and living under grace? I tried to think of a good analogy. I think that it's the difference between rendering obedience to a list of rules that I resent and following the lead of a person I love and trust. It's the difference between obeying the directive of a distant general or following the courageous leadership of your platoon sergeant who is in the heat of battle with you. The distant general from the command tent who doesn't get his arm, his hands dirty in the, in the heat of the war. The distant general hands down the edict and he says, do not lust. Don't sleep with your girlfriend, don't watch pornography, don't commit adultery, or else. The platoon sergeant comes to you and says, follow me to purity. See how I overcame temptation. Hold my hand and I will take you through. The distant general says, do not covet, be content or else. The platoon sergeant says, trust me and I will satisfy the longings of your heart with a joy this world knows nothing of. You see the difference? The one, the obedience of law, is motivated by fear of punishment or hope of reward and offers no help whatsoever in the accomplishment of the command. The other, the obedience of faith, is motivated by love and trusts in the all-sufficient supply of the Spirit to do and to be what God commands. The commandments, whether they come from the general's tent or from the platoon sergeant's mouth, they're largely the same. Be holy. But the motivation, the power, and the grace to cover you when you fall are radically different. So the gospel is not a call to a list of rules by which you may earn the reward of heaven. The gospel is a call to a person the crucified and risen Christ who has already earned heaven's reward and who shares it freely with all who come to him, who receive of his righteousness and of the riches of his grace. So the call of this text is come to Jesus. Leave behind the law. Die to it. And receive the life of Christ. A life of boundless grace and blazing, spirit-wrought holiness.